Do you ever f have the sense that there is injustice in the world? Sometimes we have a sense of injustice in the world um, with things that aren't as important. Somebody's wrong on the internet. Um, your food is not quite right at a restaurant. Relatively minor things like that. And we can get worked up over those things, but as we think about the world that we live in, there are far more serious examples of injustice. There is the ongoing hypocrisy in our nation that we should love cats and dogs more than we love children. There is the ongoing just promotion of a variety of sins in the name of equality and fairness. There is um, any number of things that contradict what the Bible says that we encounter and are frustrated by and we're not quite sure what to do with. We're, we're tempted to get into loud arguments about them. We are uh, tempted maybe to, to join or pay money to or something along those lines, some sort of group that would try to fix that particular problem. And I'm not saying any of those things are necessarily wrong in every case. But the reality is that the injustice in our world is not ultimately something that we can fix. But there is a judge who sees it and who will deal with it in his time. And Psalm 58 talks about this. It starts out describing human judges. Uh, verse 1, Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? Know in heart you work on righteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands which is set in contrast to, in the end, verses 10 and 11, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance of God. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, and men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. We have a little bit of an issue with the end of the first sentence in verse 1. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? There's kind of a, a textual issue there. Um, as it stands, the word would read something like silence, and people have tried to make sense of how that fits. Do you indeed speak righteousness, dot, 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 silence? Like, like what's the relationship between the phrase and that word? Uh, is it potentially the idea that someone is standing there when they should be ruling on a matter, like a judge should be making a ruling, and they just sort of stand back and they don't say anything, something along those lines, that's probably the one that would make the most sense in the context. But some people have said that, that word doesn't seem to be silence. If you change it by one letter, one vowel, as I recall, it becomes this word, gods. And they would say gods in terms of human rulers or judges described as gods 
to parallel the contrast with God in verse 11. The only tension with that is this word typically uh, would not be rendered God's. There's a possibility like it's within the scope of the word for it to be translated that way, but it's usually not translated that way. It's not used, as I recall, frequently in the Old Testament. And so the bottom line is, whether you take it as the NASB has it, God's representing human rulers in some capacity, whether you take it as perhaps the text more accurately reads silence, the result is the same. You're talking about a group of people who have positions of authority and responsibility for justice who are not executing that responsibility, not fulfilling justice on behalf of those who are being oppressed or mistreated in some way. The question is, do you speak righteousness? Do you judge uprightly? The answer, verse 2, in heart you work unrighteousness, on earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. Uh, the ironies here are interesting. Do you speak righteousness? No, because, as Jesus would tell us many years later, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and their hearts are full of unrighteousness. So how could they speak righteousness when they make rulings with regard to justice? And then secondly, do they judge uprightly? There's a sense of a balance, weighing of the hands. Is it this? Is it this? Who's right in this circumstance? Their own lives are full of violence. So how could they possibly be qualified to determine whether someone else is right or wrong in what they're doing. And then we have this section which is uh, cited to some degree in Romans 3 and other places. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. So the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. Uh, sometimes people will use this verse to make a specific theological point about how sin affects us. Does it start affecting us when we're two, when we're five, the moment that we're born? I mean, if we look at the experience and observe our own lives, sin is a part of our lives from a very early age, right? And that's not really the primary point that this is making. It, the point that this is making is the lives of the wicked are saturated by sin. They're estranged from God, would be the implication. They go astray speaking lies, which fits in with this idea of unjust judges in the context. Not only are their words untrue, but they're also destructive. They have venom like the venom of a serpent. Um, there was a, a, a story about a lady in Indiana who was found strangled by, I think it was a python in her home maybe a month ago. And um, that's scary enough. But if you encounter a poisonous snake, there's a, there's a kind of a, a, you know, a python might strangle you, it might not. If you're careful, it probably won't happen. I was watching a little clip of um, Crocodile Dundee. Remember the fellow? Yeah. Uh, he's picking up this snake, and he's like, this is the most, most poisonous snake in the world, or one of the most poisonous snakes in the world. This is one you definitely don't want to get bit by, and it starts to swing around, and he's like, uh, you know, 
The guy was, you know, bold, crazy, pick your adjective. Most of us don't go around picking up venomous snakes because we don't want to risk our lives in that way. Rattlesnake, down south, when we visit people, it's like, be careful near the water because there might be a cottonmouth to drop down off a tree on you, you know, that kind of thing. Fall in your fishing boat. It's always exciting. You're going to catch catfish. Snake falls in your boat. Um, I don't think it was one of my family members, but someone they knew when they were cleaning up after a big flood down in Georgia in the mid-90s. Somebody was going in their house after there had been feet of water in the houses. They were in a baseball cap. They felt something squirming on top of their baseball cap, and it was one of those venomous snakes that had been in the water that was stuck up in the, like, on their ceiling fan or something. And so you don't want to encounter a venomous snake. Why? Because it can destroy you can cause destruction of tissue in the spot where it bites you. If you don't get an anti-venin or if it's a really poisonous snake, you could die. Their words are destructive, particularly in the way that they're not accomplishing justice. Further, they're beyond the control of, seemingly, they're, they're out of control. Even other people can't restrain them in their wickedness. They're not just like a snake, but they're like a snake that's not listening to the snake charmer playing his music to get it to go back in the basket. They're doing their own thing on their way, destroying people's lives. Uh, verse 5, where it says, a skillful caster of spells. Probably this is just a parallel to the idea of the snake charmer. Uh, not a different idea, but something parallel, something kind of synonymous. Uh, the ability to control certain snakes or reptiles has been long associated with some understanding of magic. Some of those superstitions persist today. There's a perfectly harmless lizard that lives in Pakistan, but the local people believe if you touch it and it bites you, it'll liquefy your insides and you'll die. So they see these people going and collecting them for study, and they're amazed that they would pick them up and hold them in their hands. So there's this sort of this air of magic or mystery to people. That's probably the idea that's meant there when it says skillful caster of spells. Verse 6, I think, is the the high point, the central idea of this psalm. O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. And so he's perhaps switching metaphors from the snake to another animal that's just as deadly, which would be a lion. But notice that the, the, the tone shifts at this point in the psalm from the wicked what they do wrong in their character, and then illustrations or descriptions of their character to a cry for God to intervene. And then the specific nature of God's intervention is a series of, of, of curses. This is an imprecatory psalm where someone is praying God to curse. We talked about uh, Jacob receiving the blessing from Isaac this past Sunday. This would be the opposite. Instead of saying, God, will you bless them? It's saying, God, will you curse them? Will you bring them harm? And we tend to look at things like that um, as kind of empty superstition. Uh, you know, people in you know, tribal places that think that their neighbor put a curse on them, well, that's just a bunch of empty nonsense. But God is one who, if the prayer of judgment was, is in line with his will, certainly has the power to carry it out. 
uh, regardless of what we think about stories from you know, people thinking that their neighbors cursed them or, or those sorts of things. And so when the psalmist prays to God here, he is praying to God as one who has the power to carry things out, and he uses these descriptions of their judgment. Let them flow away like water that runs off. How many of you have tried to stop water before it flows into a storm drain in your street? Maybe. Kind of a hard thing to do, right? It's there and then it's gone. That's just the natural course. I think that's, this is emphasizing the temporary nature. God, make them not last. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Those of you who have gone bow hunting, I was over at the archery next door, and uh, I was waiting to, to talk to Jim, and I was looking at the stuff on his wall, and different kinds of arrowheads. The thing they all had in common, they were all pointy, right? You try to shoot somebody with one of those kids' toys that has like the, the plunger kind of head, not going to do a whole lot of harm. The psalmist is essentially praying, God, may their arrows fall short, the heads fall off, may their attempts to harm people come to nothing. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along. Uh, probably a little bit cruel, but scientifically speaking, if a snail or a slug crawls over salt, it creates a reaction which withers it up and kills it. God's essentially saying, or the psalmist is essentially saying here, God, make them as powerless and as gone as a snail that's crawled over a you know, pile of salt. The next one is one we probably struggle with like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. And for us, that is a sensitive subject, particularly if anyone has ever gone through a miscarriage. But the point of his illustration is not to make light of that. The point of his illustration is to say, God, make it as though they'd never been born. Make all their plans, their name, their power come to nothing. Verse 9 is another of those verses at which even some Hebrew scholars throw up their hands and say, I'm not entirely sure what it means. I guess the, the NIV has a note in it that says, we're not sure what this means, at least the NIV study Bible. If we take it as it's recorded here, before the pots feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with the whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. It would be something along the lines of this. Before you can have any benefit of the fire heating up the pot that you're cooking stew in. It's like a wind comes, blows out the fire, blows away the kindling, and everything there is gone. There's of no benefit. And so along these lines, if we take it in that sense, and the other senses, the other possible translations, are kind of along the same lines. It's basically, God comes along, sweeps away the wicked, they're gone, they're powerless, they're unable to carry out their plans. So the psalmist has said, God, deal with these people. They're unjust. They are twisting justice to their own ends. They are thoroughly wicked in their character. Judge them in these various ways. What's the result of it? Verse 10, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. 
He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. We don't maybe feel comfortable with the idea of the righteous rejoicing when there's vengeance, right? Because we think of a passage like it says in Romans, where it says that God is the one who needs to take vengeance. He's the one who will, who will repay. We should stay out of it. Think about the context in which the psalm was written. There was a legitimate sense in, a, in which the enemies of God's people deserved God's wrath, and when they saw God's wrath carried out, the appropriate response was not to side with the wicked whom God had judged, but rather to rejoice with God in his victory. And so, I don't think the picture here, and some of the commentaries pointed this out, I don't think the picture here is that we would um, be like a scene from some gory movie where the person is like attacking their enemy with some weapon and just reveling in it. That's not the picture. The picture is, here's someone who has set themselves, or a group of people who have set themselves up against God, twisted what's right, taken advantage of those who deserve their help. God has brought them to justice, and when they meet their end, we agree with God that they deserve His judgment. And that, I think, is why verse 11 is such a good summary for this chapter, this psalm. What is the end result of all these things? Men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Because what happens when injustice prevails? People begin to say, it doesn't matter what I do, because I'm going to get a raw deal anyway. It doesn't matter that I try to please God, because where is He? But when God carries out His judgment on the wicked, the only right and appropriate response is to say, What's God has, what God has done is right. I agree with it. I rejoice that God rewards the wicked with punishment and the righteous with deliverance. There is a God. Let's honor Him and praise Him. That's the sense, I think, with which this psalm closes. Which brings us to probably a question that has crossed your mind. When does this happen? There are certainly points in which this happened in Israel's history, for example. There are points even in the history of the world since then in which I think God has, not necessarily according to the prophecies of the Bible, but rather according to His purpose, broadly speaking in history, has defeated the wicked and delivered the righteous. Um... Sometimes people cite the example of the Spanish Armada coming to attack England that was lost in a fog, unable to carry out their plan. Again, we have to say who was righteous, who was wicked in that situation. There were probably some on both sides of that in both countries. But there are times when justice has prevailed and when God has judged the wicked. The ultimate times when this takes place, I think, are found in Ephesians 1 and in 2 Thessalonians 1. So I want us to look there briefly to see how this ties into our lives today. 
If you look at verse 19, Paul's praying that the Ephesians would understand God's work. And he says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things into subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What was the accusation of the Jews against Christ? He blasphemes God. Caesar, or the not Caesar, Pilate perhaps mockingly quotes them and says, here's the king of the Jews, which they didn't like being hung on the cross above him. But the reality is that that is true. And Ephesians 1 says, God has vindicated Christ. He has said what he did was right. I accept what he has done. He did not blaspheme me. He was sent by me. He accomplished what I sent him to do. Therefore, he is exalted. So Christ's vindication against the probably the supreme example of injustice that we have in the history of the world, here comes the Savior of the world to his people who reject him and mock him and crucify him. Peter makes this very clear in the book of Acts, right? We've alluded to this many times. By the hands of wicked men, you murdered him. But God vindicated him. He rose from the dead. And so, Jesus has been vindicated against the injustice that he experienced and there is a sense in which I think God brought the blood of Christ upon His own people, potentially in the events that happened around AD 70, but then also uh, in the judgment that He brought against people who did the things that Jesus was accused of. Think about, for example, Herod, who speaks in pride. And people say the voice of a God and not of a man and God strikes him down. He's eaten by worms and he dies. What's the response of the righteous to a circumstance like that? God has done right. There is a God. He executes justice on the earth. Turn over to the other passage I mentioned, 2 Thessalonians 1. Start in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Did they deserve those persecutions and afflictions? No. That was injustice that was being perpetrated against them by people very much like the ones that we see in Psalm 58. What is God's assessment of the situation? Verse 5, this is, and the this is supplied, and it refers back to faith in the midst of trials, specifically persecution and affliction. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus 
will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among you all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. We have here elements which parallel what we see in Psalm 58. There is suffering. There is, perhaps implied, not stated, a cry to God for deliverance. There is God coming and crushing the wicked. There is the rejoicing of the righteous. And most importantly, there is God being glorified as a result. So when will your vindication come against the injustice in the world that you experience to a greater or lesser degree? Definitely when Christ returns. Perhaps in smaller measure before then, So what is our appropriate response in light of Psalm 58 and in light of these other passages to the injustice that we see in the world? There's a time and a place for confronting it. There is a time and a place for sharing the gospel with those who treat us unjustly in those ways. There is also a time and a place for saying, God, deal with these who are sinning. You're not going to change people's minds by getting into arguments with them about things like abortion. You're not going to persuade them by posting angry rants online. You're not ultimately going to score points by uh, necessarily even running for political office and gaining some measure of power and trying to pass laws to fix all these things because the next few years someone else may come along and undo all the work that you've done. I don't say these things to say that it's pointless to try to address any of these problems. I simply say them to point out this fact. The only one who can ultimately deal with the injustice in the world is Jesus who's going to come and rule with a rod of iron the nations. And so we should not put our hope in our efforts, in political processes, in our ability to argue with people, all of these sorts of things. Again, do what is right in a particular situation that we know from other places in Scripture, but don't put your hope in your efforts to resolve every last injustice in the world. Rather, cry out to God, ask Him to deal with the wicked, and rejoice when He does so, whether that's now, in 20 years, or when Christ returns. we often feel powerless in the face of the injustice in our world. And we should recognize and call it what it is. But it ought to also drive us to cry out to God because He's the only one who can ultimately fix it. Let's pray. Lord, there are those who are living in a wicked way in our society even now who rejoice in the death of the innocent and the oppression of the righteous who call evil good and good evil who would love to see every last church scraped off the ground every last person who claims your name to death. 
they would seek to silence any voice that would speak the truth because it exposes their own sin. Lord, we ask You that You would judge the wicked. We know that You have the power to bring to repentance. We also know that You have the power to bring every knee to bow before Christ willingly or unwillingly and glorify Yourself in both the deliverance of the righteous and the casting down of the wicked in a spectacular display of Your power and glory. And so we look forward to that day and we ask You to work in and through us until that day that the more that we see that this world is broken, the more that it would drive us to turn to You and not to trust in ourselves, to do what's right, but to realize that our efforts are ultimately in Your hand as to whether they are successful when we are cast down because the wicked seem to be prevailing, that we would turn to You. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.